Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. I'm still Zaid Wahab, and today we will conclude our discussion of the first fitna, this civil war within the Caliphate. It'll be a bumpy, fast-paced ride for the bits we have few narrations on, and a little confusing for the others where we have too many, but when it's all said and done, we will have something resembling unity once again. So let's get started with episode 16, Reconquering the Ummah. Our discussion of Ali bin Abi Talib's reign so far has traced a clear decline, both in terms of land under his control and more importantly control over his own men. The repeated disobedience of his Kufan armies had thwarted his plans many times so far, but most importantly at Safin, and right after the failure of the first arbitration. Muawiyah used all the tools at his disposal to make things as difficult for Ali as possible, and those included making promises of wealth and power to any tribal leaders still on the caliph's side. This went a long way towards undermining Ali's originally superior position, especially since the caliph would not reciprocate. In his letters and speeches, Ali rarely made any promises or threats, and while he didn't try to abolish the tribal hierarchy or anything, his treatment of the men in his ummah as equals meant that he was working against the pre-existing power structure all while his Umayyad rival spoke its language fluently and was eager to sway its elites against the caliph. Another reason the tribes preferred to fight for Muawiyah was that it paid. On top of any rewards from the governor, you could kill and loot your opponents. Fighting for Ali brought no earthly rewards. He would unfailingly remind his troops that their opponents were Muslims before every battle. He always granted clemency to those who surrendered and returned the injured to their tribes. In fact, the only instances of punishment ordered by the caliph that I came across were against his own governors and leaders, whenever they were accused of misconduct by their men. For these reasons and more, Ali had a difficult time marshalling armies to defend his caliphate. While all Muawiyah had to do was outline his wishes to one of his many commanders, our sources tell us that Ali was often let down by the tribal leadership. He had to give multiple public speeches in which he pleaded, warned, and otherwise cajoled those listening to defend the just and punish the wicked. After several unheeded requests, some tribal leader would eventually respond to the caliph's calls and rally his men against whatever danger they were facing at the time, usually Karajite or Syrian raids. You'll find more information about the Karajites in the glossary associated with these episodes, but for those of you just listening in, I think it's worth saying a few words about them as their shifting stances and motivations can make them difficult to understand. They first left the Iraqi armies after the senseless conclusion of the Battle of Safin, saying they found both sides to be wrong, the Syrians for rebelling against their caliph, and the caliph for not punishing them properly. When Ali reasoned with them, after they first left, they faulted him for his repeated declarations that their enemies were Muslim. This is what their motto was in reference to, no judgment but God's. As Ali's position became significantly weaker post-Safin, the Karajites began to attract more clans and tribes to their cause. At first those which had remained neutral out of a lack of interest in this whole Hashemite-Umayyad struggle, and then increasingly those who resented the way things were. These different types of Karajites were only united in name, or at best in oppositional spirit. 
Anyone who did not want either of the two chiefs of Quraysh to rule the Ummah was called a Karajite, regardless of their political beliefs and preferences. There were Karajites who only found it unfair that caliphs must be from Quraysh, others who thought having a state or tribal collective or whatever was unnecessary, others that it was unjust, others that it was sinful, others still who had their own ideas of what the perfect caliphate looked like and felt justified in spilling anyone's blood to achieve it, etc. If a clan or tribe left the Ummah for those or any other reason, they were branded Karajites. Despite most of them having been killed at Nahrawan, the Karajites continued to exist, mainly thanks to Ali's forgiving attitude towards wayward Muslims. Remember, the Karajites were a uniquely Iraqi phenomenon, because Muawiyah kept the Syrians united by hook or by crook. Ali, on the other hand, had a high tolerance for dissent, and found it foolish to pursue worldly glory if it meant compromising one's standing in the afterlife. The remnants of the Karajites were further radicalized by the bloody end the men they'd abandoned had suffered, and they would dub the battle the Massacre of Nahrawan and make it one of their founding tragedies. A few hundred banded together to harass some Iraqi cities only weeks after Nahrawan, but Ali's son, Al-Hasan, led an army to deal with them. Other attacks followed, Al-Tabari's comprehensive history lists a total of five, the final one of which took place about a month after the second arbitration, around February of 659. The caliph personally led his armies to that one, hoping to reason with the Karajites and bring them back into the fold once again. They cursed and attacked him, but were subdued without much difficulty. As usual, Ali granted them safety and allowed the wounded to be treated in Kufa. The Syrian raids on Ali's territory proved to be a much more dangerous and time-consuming problem for the caliph. In total, there are about 10 raids, give or take, but I don't see much benefit in covering all of them in detail. One should be enough to describe their intensely tribal dynamic. So let me tell you about Muawiyah's attempt on Basra. Despite the Syrian governor's PR victory at the second arbitration, his claim to leadership of the community went unacknowledged outside of Syria and Egypt, and he was eager to further undermine his rival anywhere support for Ali could still be found. The timing isn't clear, but I think it was shortly after this last engagement against the Karajites, sometime in the spring of 659. Abdullah ibn al-Abbas was nominally the city's governor, but he was often away for months taking care of business for his cousin, the caliph. And as a deputy, he left behind the man who would come to be known as the fourth Dahiyah, Ziyad ibn Abihi, but we'll get to him in later episodes. Anyway, the governor's prolonged absence encouraged one of the Basrans to write to Muawiyah, inviting him to take advantage of it to speak to his many supporters in Basra. As Basra had rebelled against Ali when the Meccan faction came to town years earlier, Muawiyah may have reasoned that it would come over to his side just as readily. He sent a messenger to the Basrans, asking them to rally around him and promising them to double their stipends and never take a single dirham of their taxes out of their lands. Ali's local police chief saw the tribal leadership gathered around this enemy emissary and warned them to not trade the prophet's cousin for a faraway tyrant, but they shooed him away, telling him he had no right to tell them what to do. See? There's another obvious example of how tribal things had become. To these, and no doubt other Arabs, the caliphate's men were little more than loyalists of their Hashemite leader, and they had no right to demand anything of other Arabs, who were instead expected to fall in line with their own tribal hierarchy. At the end of this meeting, the leader of the Azd tribe, one of the biggest in Basra, asked Muawiyah's messenger to stay among them as a guest, but the man said he had orders to stay with another of the major Basran tribes, the Mudar. This was all it took to offend the Azd, and while they did not react aggressively, 
they must have now begun to wonder what their status would be like under Muawiyah if the Syrian governor was already showing a preference for one of their local rivals. The tribal dynamic between these two tribes was all it took to push the Ezd into Ali's camp, and when Deputy Governor Ziad voiced that he felt insecure in his palace, the chief of Ezd promised to protect him and his entire treasury if he would only be his guest. And so he moved in, taking all the city's riches with him. He wasn't even in hiding. The Ezd insisted they set up a makeshift mosque and throne for him to administer the city from. It didn't matter that the Ezd were happy to invite Muawiyah's messenger to stay with them just days earlier, or that they'd fought against Ali years ago. Muawiyah's preference for another tribe was enough to put them solidly on the caliph's side. When the Mudar tried placing the Syrian in the governor's palace, the Ezd rallied to protect it and told their rivals that they had no right forcing a governor upon them, more clear examples of tribal politics. Muawiyah's man tried playing the part of governor by demanding that taxes be collected and distributed at his command, but it wasn't long before the caliph began addressing the situation from Kufa. He sent one of his loyalists of Mudar to speak to his tribe, but that man was assassinated by Karajites before he made any headway, a little crossover of enemies in that event. He then sent another one who succeeded in thinning out his tribe's support for Muawiyah, and the nascent rebellion against the caliph was quashed when the Syrian messenger and his remaining allies of Mudar were killed and Ziyad returned to the governor's palace to run the city once again. This short and relatively peaceful affair shows how wholly the Arabs had reverted back to their tribal habits. They had never really abandoned them, but under Omar, for example, the tribes would all compete with one another to fulfill the caliph's wishes and bring glory to the Ummah. Now, the will of the caliph was merely one of many variables that the tribal leadership would take into account while trying to maximize its own power. Furthermore, the caliph now had to cater to this tribal dynamic. It would have been thoughtless of Ali to send an army against Basra as that risked alienating the local tribes or uniting them against a hostile foreign one. While it did provide an excellent example of tribal dynamics, the attempt on Basra was atypical of Muawiyah's raids as he did not send any troops, just a messenger in hopes of turning the Basrans themselves into his supporters. Other raids would involve more coercion on his part, with troops forcing people into pledging allegiance and killing and looting those who resisted. There were raids into Mesopotamia, and south of that in the desert between Syria and Iraq, and some of the neutral Bedouin tribes on the fringes of Syrian territory. Ali's response was always the same a tribal army with a tribal leader at its head, who either had some reason to defend the lands under attack or was moved into action after witnessing Ali's repeated exhortations go unanswered. After being repelled from those surrounding lands several times, Muawiyah began to focus his raids on the Arabian Peninsula. An early attack was thwarted by Ali's forces sometime in 659, but the Umayyad now hoped to use the pilgrimage in the spring of 660 to further his legitimacy as caliph in the birthplace of Islam. Here's another peaceful invasion. He ordered one of his more religiously-minded commanders to head to Mecca and take charge of the pilgrimage, giving him 3,000 men to ensure he would be obeyed. This commander marched south, making sure to avoid hostile Medina on his way to the ancestral home of Quraysh. Despite their mistrust of Muawiyah, the Quraysh were still no fans of Hashemite rule, and they remained silent when the Hashemite governor asked whether they would rally to his side to defend Mecca from the Syrians. Instead, they received the commander gracefully, and the man's religious character left him disinclined towards violence. He prayed with the people, and upon hearing of an Iraqi army making its way to the city, departed without taking any pledges of allegiance for Muawiyah. 
Muawiyah's quest to bring the peninsula under his control received an unexpected boost when some letters arrived from Yemen, probably in the early summer of 660. They were from tribes proclaiming allegiance to Uthman, the wronged caliph, and they contained poetry coaxing the Umayyad governor to send them troops so that they would not be forced to submit to Adi. It seems that the fall of Egypt had encouraged all sorts of disobedience in the region, and some tribes in Sana'a and Al-Janad had rebelled against the caliph's governors. Some narrations report that they just wanted their Hashemite governors replaced but worried about a disproportionate reply from Adi while others that they were hardcore supporters of Uthman who came out of the woodwork now that the caliph seemed to be in a tough spot. Whatever the reason, Muawiyah now found a new excuse to send an army into the peninsula, and the man he chose for the job is guaranteed to leave a bloody impression upon you. Busur bin Abi Arta'a was given 3,000 horsemen for his campaign, and we are ominously told that he dismissed 400 of them before heading out after he found them insufficiently compliant. His instructions from Muawiyah were simple, intimidate people into pledging their allegiance and kill any Hashemites you come across. He began by pillaging every watering hole between Syria and Medina, his first stop on the peninsula. He met little resistance as he menaced into town with his army and delivered a threat-laced speech promising death to those in attendance, calling them traitorous murderers of the caliph. Like the overwhelming majority of the Ummah's commanders, Busur was from the peninsula himself, and during his speech, his stepfather, one of many relatives in the crowd, interrupted him protesting that these were his people and the helpers of the Prophet, that they were not responsible for the death of Uthman. He took everybody's pledges of allegiance for Muawiyah, and instead of killing anyone, sufficed with burning down the houses of those who had run away to avoid pledging. Busur then made his way to Mecca, and again threatened everyone with death until they meekly pledged their allegiance. He didn't have to kill many people here either, as fear of his arrival had sparked an exodus from the city. He again destroyed and looted the property of anyone who hadn't submitted, and proceeded to make his way south to Yemen. He passed the city of Ta'if on the way, and since that's where the Dahiyah al-Mughira bin Shu'bah was residing during the fitna, we are treated to some entertaining accounts of how he cleverly redirected Busur's murderous energy to spare the residents of his city. The gist of things is that Busur killed less people in Ta'if than elsewhere, took everyone's pledges for Muawiyah, and went on his way. He fought into submission any tribes he came across, and one day he stumbled upon a tribe raising two young Hashemites, the children of the governor of Sana'a, Ali's cousin, Ubaidullah ibn al-Abbas. It was a Adnani custom for families living in towns or cities to entrust their children to Bedouin clans for a number of years, so that they would grow up with true knowledge of the desert. This was a long-standing tradition, and when Busur seized the two boys to kill them, their guardian gave his life trying to stop it. Their killing at the ages of 8 and 10 counted among Buthur's most shocking and reviled acts, but that list is too horrible to actually have a worst act. He massacred tribes at the first sign of resistance, even killing desert hermits apparently for fun. He butchered the people of Najran, and when the people of Hamdan tried fortifying themselves in the mountain, he raided their villages, killed their men, and enslaved their women and children. The Arabs had managed to not enslave one another for about 30 years, but Busur now brought back that abhorrent custom. The governor of Al-Janad put up some resistance, but eventually both he and the governor of Sana'a fled to Kufa. When a group of leaders representing the various tribes of a nearby Yemeni city arrived to surrender and sue for peace, Busur is said to have pulled the classic villain move of killing them all but one, saying that one messenger was all it took to deliver the joyous news of his acceptance of their submission. In total, 
Busr is said to have killed over 12,000 Arabs, with some narrations going as high as 30,000. Whatever the truth is, he was definitely remembered as a savage bloodletter. His last stop was in Hadramaut, where we are told he promised death to a quarter of its people, but left before he had the chance to deliver, after hearing that the caliph had finally sent an army his way. We haven't mentioned the caliph for a while now, so let's turn our attention back to Kufa. When he first received news about Busr's raid, Ali urged his governors in Yemen to fend for themselves. This wasn't because he had no forces to send them, but because he was finally getting close to amassing enough troops to take the fight to Muawiyah in Syria, and he did not want to divert his armies or attention to a new battlefront. In his attempts to intimidate the Arabs into pledging their allegiance to him, Muawiyah had instead alienated them. A growing number was beginning to realize that their best chance at stopping Muawiyah from ruling them lay with supporting the caliph in his struggle against the Umayyad. Ali had gained the support of neutral tribes around Syria, and he had sent his most competent commanders to bring him fresh armies from as far away as Azerbaijan and Pars. Well, I mean Arab armies, of course. Busser's raids on the peninsula went on for months, however, and reports about his behavior so strained the imagination that Ali eventually felt compelled to send 3,000 troops to chase him back out to Syria. This must have been in late 660, and the caliph was now only waiting for one of his most loyal supporters, Qais ibn Abada, his original governor of Egypt, to return with troops from the east before leading his armies against Damascus. All of this must have taken place around late 660, and the caliph was now only waiting for one of his most competent and loyal supporters, Qais ibn Abada, his original governor of Egypt, to return with troops from the east before leading his armies against Damascus. As Ali entered the mosque one Ramadan morning in early 661 to lead dawn prayers, a man behind him exclaimed, Judgment belongs to God, not you and your likes, and struck him on the head with a poisoned blade. The carriageite was subdued, and the caliph medically attended to, but there was nothing to be done. Ali died of his wounds two days later, and his three sons, Al-Hasan, Al-Hussein, and Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiyya, washed and buried their father. His killer was part of a wider plot hatched at the pilgrimage a year earlier. Other assassins were meant for Muawiyah and Amr ibn al-As, as these three leaders were the ones the Karajites blamed the most for deluding the Ummah and leading it into sin. Unlike Ali, Muawiyah was always under vigilant guard, and his would-be assassin was stopped before he had a chance to draw his weapon. Amr didn't bother to lead prayers that day, and the Karajite awaiting him killed the man he'd sent to lead them in his place. Before being executed, the assassin wished death upon Amr, and the governor taunted him with his own carriageite motto, reminding him that judgment belonged not to him, but to God. Classic Dahiya rhetoric. They always get the best lines. When Ali's eldest son, Al-Hassan, announced his father's passing at the mosque in Kufa, his father's cousin and ex-governor of Sana'a, Ubaidullah ibn al-Abbas, pledged his allegiance to him. The other Hashemites did the same, and before long those assembled followed suit. The new caliph had been by his father's side throughout all hostilities, but he still retained a strong reputation as a lover of peace. He had often tried to convince his father to avoid battle, not because he was taken in by any of Muawiyah's claims, but because he struggled with how much bloodshed was justified in order to stop him. Al-Hassan was in an unenviable position, and over the next few weeks he stayed in Kufa, while the coalition his father had spent years putting together slowly melted away. 
Upon hearing of Ali's death, Muawiyah sent out letters to all the tribal leaders who had opposed him with new offers of wealth and clemency if they would only pledge their allegiance. Sources cite all sorts of reasons for why this now worked when only months earlier an impressive army was united in opposition to the Syrian governor, but it seems obvious that with Ali gone, tribal leaders were tripping over one another in their rush to pledge to the man they thought would be the next caliph. Al-Hassan did not reach out to Muawiyah, nor any of his father's allies for that matter, until after he received a letter from his father's other cousin and his close confidant, Abdullah ibn al-Abbas. Abdullah urged the young Hashemite to take up his father's fight and reminded him of the righteousness of his religious duty to shield the Ummah from the hands of the corrupt Muawiyah. We are told that days after reading this, Al-Hassan wrote the Syrian governor a letter addressed from the Caliph to Muawiyah. It summarized events as he saw them and ended with an ultimatum, telling him to stop all rebellious behavior and rejoin the Ummah. Otherwise, the Caliph would have no choice but to lead his armies against him. Muawiyah's reply started as a mirror image of the letter he had received. Addressed from the Caliph to Al-Hassan, it retold events in ways that cast him in a much more positive light and justified his quest to avenge the third Caliph's murder. He then went on to write that it wasn't the past which stopped him from pledging allegiance to Al-Hassan, but the future. Muawiyah claimed to have only the Ummah's welfare in mind and said that he could not turn away from the burden of leadership when he knew he was the one most capable of bearing it. He wrote about how he was older and more experienced in both life and leadership, implying that it was more appropriate for Al-Hassan to acknowledge his legitimacy instead. He ended with his usual stratagem, bribes and promises. If he accepted, Al-Hassan could take with him all the riches of Iraq and receive the entire tax revenue of any province he picked as a lifelong annuity. Furthermore, Muawiyah would make no decisions without consulting him, granting him both veto and executive powers throughout the caliphate, and best of all, would even name him his successor. Al-Hassan did not dignify Muawiyah's lies with a response. As support for Al-Hassan waned in Kufa, Muawiyah now found the courage to return to the battlefield. He put together a large army of around 60,000 and began marching towards the city, granting amnesty to tribes that were now cowed into submission. Al-Hassan tried rallying the forces in Kufa, but found the tribal leadership to be quite uncooperative. His father's closest partisans were still loyal to his cause, and they took it upon themselves to spur these men to action. Nobody did more than Al-Qais bin Abada, and Al-Hassan thanked him by placing him second in command of the Iraqi vanguard, which was to be led by his Hashemite uncle, Ubaidullah ibn al-Abbas. Not Abdullah, this was his brother Ubaidullah, whom Ali had installed as a governor in Yemen. He was now in Iraq after being driven out of the peninsula by Muawiyah's commander, Busr. He was the one to first pledge allegiance to Hassan. Taking with them 12,000 men, the two commanders set out north, intending to intercept the Syrians near modern-day Fallujah by the Euphrates. When the two armies were across the river from one another, Muawiyah sent emissaries to Ubaidullah and Qais asking for passage through to Kufa, claiming that he and Al-Hassan were in negotiation. This was a ploy to weaken the resolve of the Iraqi armies, but nobody bought it and the messengers were sent back. Scandalously, Ubaidullah ibn al-Abbas went over to Muawiyah's side alone, and the sources tell us he was promised a cool million dirhams for abandoning his cousin's son. He was received graciously by Muawiyah, but things turned awkward after he recognized Busur in the Syrian governor's tent and cursed him for killing his two young sons. But hey, a million is a million and Busur blamed Muawiyah, who in turn blamed Busur, and can't we all just be friends now that everything was said and done? 
The next day, Qais cursed the Hashemite for this betrayal, and when the Syrians showed up demanding the surrender of the Iraqis, he led the vanguard to victory against them, repelling them back across the river. A more forceful attempt the next day was also rebuffed, and Muawiyah now wrote to Qais with offers of riches and glory. Qais's reply was so scathing that when Muawiyah asked Amr what he should write in response, Amr counseled silence, telling the governor that it wasn't worth risking what Qais might write next. Meanwhile, Al-Hasan continued to try and marshal more troops, and he was meant to lead the bulk of this army to the vanguard after amassing enough men. He did not meet much success, however, and after a speech he delivered one morning seemed to suggest that he considered disunity and war to be worse for the Ummah than a peace under Muawiyah, many of those in attendance rioted and abandoned their ambivalent caliph. They looted his tent and attacked him in person, taking the cloak off his shoulders and even pulling his prayer rug from beneath him. A Karajite managed to use this chaos to make his way to the caliph and proclaimed their infamous judgment motto before stabbing him in the thigh with a pickaxe. Al-Hasan was rescued from the mob by his few remaining loyalists, who dressed his wounds and gave him shelter. When news of this development made it to the front, the Syrian armies stopped their advance while Muawiyah tried to convince Al-Hasan to submit to him once again. Muawiyah had only managed to offend the Hashemite with his clumsy offers of bribes and empty promises. After news of the speech that Al-Hasan had given reached him, he now understood his opponent's weakness very well and used it to his advantage. He sent emissaries to speak to Al-Hasan in person, and they impressed upon him that Muawiyah would have no qualms about killing every last Iraqi should they continue to resist. They conveyed to the Hashemite that they were so concerned with the spilling of Muslim blood and their inability to dissuade their governor from this violent course of action that Al-Hasan was now the only one capable of sparing Muslim lives, all by the simple act of pledging his allegiance. This argument resonated with Al-Hasan, and the narrations stressed his concern for the people of his ummah. Muawiyah then wrote another letter, addressing it simply from Muawiyah to Al-Hasan. As old habits die hard, he made the same promises of millions, annual gifts, and to name Al-Hasan as his successor. Al-Hasan actually replied this time around. He rejected the offer, telling its messenger that it contained nothing his heart desired. Muawiyah replied with a blank page bearing his name at the bottom, with instructions for Al-Hasan to write in whatever he pleased. Al-Hasan wrote that he was surrendering what was rightfully his to Muawiyah, on the basis that the latter act in accordance with the Qur'an and the early caliphs. He stipulated that Muawiyah would not be allowed to appoint any successor, but that an election council would be convened to decide the matter of leadership after his death. Most importantly, he added that the people and their property should be safe from harm regardless of their previous disposition towards the Syrian governor. The letter was signed in August 661. Following this, Muawiyah made his way to Kufa, where he asked Al-Hasan to pledge his allegiance publicly before he left the city. Al-Hasan understood why this was required, and while doing so he cited the same reasoning we just mentioned, saying that he was forfeiting what was rightfully his in order to save the Ummah further bloodshed, that he found whatever spared the people death and suffering favorable to the alternative, and he urged those who supported him to unite the Ummah by following his lead. He then packed his things and made his way to Medina, accompanied by his Hashemite kin. When push came to shove, the Ansar of Medina, Muhammad's earliest champions, had proven their loyalty to his Hashemite clan, and Al-Hasan only felt at home among them. Al-Hasan's submission to Muawiyah in late 661 made it the year of unity in Arab histories. 
Sure, the new caliph still had to deal with some remnants of Ali's forces who refused to give up the fight, and then there were the Karajites and all the lands east of Iraq, but now that there was nobody else contesting the title, the caliphate was a single entity once again. Before we get into what Muawiyah did, now that he was finally in charge, we really need to have a long, overdue talk about our sources and why things are about to get, well, different. It's a little difficult to describe, but join me next time to learn more about what I mean on the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. Mm -hmm.